I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... People want me on some level because they believe that I have a message that could help people, men and women in the workplace, but then they feel this pressure and fear of retaliation from firms like Goldman Sachs. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, along with producer Tracy Madigan. Today, we welcome Jamie Fiore Higgins. She's an author. What did she write? A book called Bully Market. The subhead is My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. Hey, it says it all right there. Her 16-year career, ending with a managing partner stripe at Goldman Sachs, was chronicled in this book, specifically about the ways that misogyny, sexism, threats, you name it, happens at the firm often considered the top of the financial service industry. Are you surprised? The answer should be no. But when you get into the t- details that we get into in our conversation, you realize this is endemic. And it's going to take all of us to try and figure out a way to extract it from financial services and other industries. And guess what? Final kicker. This kind of happens in every large organization. Hint, hint, wink, nudge, federal government. Here's our conversation. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to unpack, and we're so excited to have you on this show because a lot of what, in my opinion, you've experienced and chronicled and your arc at at Goldman uh, can really, I would suggest, apply to uh, the role of the federal government and uh, government agencies and those who support government agencies. So we'll get to that in a second. But in your experience, what's been some of the most surprising things uh, in in response to your book? When the book came out, in fact, right before the book came out, when um, I was talking to my publisher, some of the concerns was, well, you know, Jamie, you left in 2016. That was then. This is now. Is this book really relevant? My gut said it was. I had kept in touch with enough people in the business to know it was. But there was a little part of me that wasn't 100% sure. And starting the day the book was brought out, um, and actually even before, because I was lucky enough to have some media coverage before the book was published, I started receiving messages. It's important to note that all the messages were private. They were DMs. They were personal emails. No one really felt comfortable, it seemed, to kind of go on a Facebook page or on an Instagram page to put it out. But what I got was hundreds and hundreds of messages, now over a thousand of people being telling me their experiences and really gut-wrenching detailed experiences about what they are enduring. And to your point, this transcends finance. I mean, I've heard from people from media, finance, law, politics. And, you know, Part of me felt very validated that, hey, yeah, this, yeah, of course, it's my story, but I really believe as humans, our stories are more similar than different. But I was also a little sad, too, because part of me had hoped maybe things had changed since Me Too. Well, that is the beginning of this sad recounting of your career. I I shouldn't say sad. It's just it's so eye opening. 
And um, for our listeners, I, I went to business school and a number of my classmates went into financial services, male classmates and some female classmates went into financial services. And the stories that I used to hear, not being part of it, were uh, eye-popping in their aggressiveness. And in some ways, I don't think of you as a whistleblower. I think of you as a chronicler. And have you ever been called a whistleblower? Do you find that label dis- dis- disconcerting uh, and-, and how your book has been received? Or do you think you are in some ways a whistleblower on this kind of behavior? I like to think of myself as a truth teller. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like what I described, like I said, was my story, but so indicative of so many others. And what has been so surprising to me is although so many people have experiences like this, there's a reluctance to bring it forward. And I think because in some ways, and you know, I can only speak about Goldman Sachs, but I know this applies to all different industries in DC as well. There's this really important component of secrecy and kind of keeping things inside the group, inside the family secrecy. Now, secrecy in some ways is very good for business, right? If you're Mrs. Fields, you don't want anybody to know that recipe. It's got to be kept secret, right? So secrecy does help sometimes with business. But what I found was when it comes to the personnel side, secrecy is almost weaponized and it keeps people silent. And so um, to me, I just feel like Call me whatever you want. A whistleblower is fine too, but I really feel like I am just speaking about candidly what really, really happens at these large, powerful organizations. You left the firm in 2016 as a managing director, which um, I guess the math would show is extraordinarily complimentary. Only, I think, 8% of Goldman Sachs employees uh, reach, reach that level. When you walked out, as I recall from the research, you had kept a journal or some sort of contemporaneous account of your of your arc there over 18 or so years. Did, did you walk out knowing this was sort of your next stage or did this come to you over 2018, 2020, 21? It certainly wasn't my idea when I walked out to write a book. And all those kind of journals, note-taking I did throughout the years, quite frankly, it was because what do people always say to people when they're having problems in the workplace? Document, 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 right? So um, it was really for that purpose. The reason why I wrote the book was my first few months after I left Goldman, I was depressed. Like I couldn't get out of bed depressed. I had four young kids at home, seven years um, and younger. I had a lot of stuff to do, but I just didn't have the energy to do it. I was depressed like I had been shockingly fired which was so ironic because I left on my own. And it really made me realize what a hold that firm had over me. Almost, and not to be insensitive to domestic abuse, it was almost like an abusive relationship. And as I kind of deprogrammed from that world, I got really curious about how someone like me who started off with aspirations of being a social worker to make the world a better place, not only endured the kind of harassment and abuse that I endured, but I also perpetuated the culture as well. I also was not a nice person to others. And I got very curious about how an organization can change you so much. And that was really the impetus for writing the book, just to kind of explore for myself. And then as I shared my anecdotes with different people, you know, in those early um, writing years, I realized, you know what? 
I think I have something here that might be interested for, you know, just outside my circle of friends. Well, making the world a better place, I, I, I have found, again, my friends who join you know, bulge bracket firms, as they call them on, on Wall Street, do drink the Kool-Aid. And they do, they do, in my experience, they make a construct in their brain that they are doing right by the world, that they're raising capital for growth companies, that they're uh, uh, creating a, a debt structure for governments to support their citizens and stuff like that. Did you find yourself sometimes finding rationalization structures so that you were helping the world be a better place? Or was it always more about the money and about the, and about the culture? Um, yeah, I mean, the joke at Goldman was that we were doing God's work. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, listen, um, I'm a relatively intelligent person. I knew that, you know, that really wasn't true. But it's amazing what you accept and normalize when you're with an environment where everyone else is doing it. And I think that's really was at the crux of how much that environment changed me, because when you're so enmeshed in a culture, you know, and you're kind of elders, if you will, the more experienced people are kind of telling you what it is, even if your gut is kind of pinging that this isn't right, um, you're incentivized to go along. Because then what's the alternative? Thinking that you weren't doing good things? Like, how can you get up every morning and not and, and go to a job where you feel like you're, you know, as Mike Taibbi said, the vampire squid sucking on the face of humanity, right? It's much, it's much more palatable to get up every morning and say you're doing God's work than that. In your book, you have a number of situations where you either went to your supervisor or to a colleague to report behavior that was just completely out of bounds. Or in one main example, you went to HR with the assumption it would be private. It seems like the outcomes of those were very, very shocking. So when I first started the firm and I observed some things that kind of didn't ring true to my values or what I expected, I would raise them just to my immediate manager. And at first it was almost, for lack of better words, a little bit of gaslighting, like, um, Oh, don't be such a drama queen. That's what it's like on Wall Street. Now, ironically, I went to a women's college um, outside of Philadelphia, which, as you can imagine, is very pro-women and gender equality. So a lot of the guys, when I first observed these things, they'd be like, oh, you were just poisoned by that women's college. That's not real life, right? So that was kind of that first element of, no, Jamie, you're wrong. And so part of me said, well, Maybe that is true. I mean, Bryn Mawr is kind of a little bit of a bubble uh, outside of Philly. But then when things kind of kicked up a notch and got more egregious, I would go to my manager and I knew this was a problem. And unfortunately, they would dangle promotions and bonuses in payment for my silence. Like, okay, Jamie, you can go to HR about this, but it's essentially going to cost you. And with supporting my family of origin and then the family I was building with my husband, I would shut up. Now, toward the end of my career, I experienced something so egregious. I was like, enough's enough. And I was finally realizing the toll it takes to work in an environment day after day that is completely counter to your values. And that's when I reported it. And I was promised anonymity. It was with a gentleman from the HR group that I knew well. And the very next day, instead of opening up a case as he should have, he reported it to my partner, 
who kind of used it as a currency, kind of, again, that secrecy, right? That information was currency. And what I realized after the fact was that guy who ratted me out ended up working for my partner. Wow. Now, I don't, I believe HR groups really do want to do what's best with for employees. But the problem is, it's always about money. HR groups are cost centers. Sales and trading desks are profit centers. And so I think it's really hard for HR professionals to do their job and protect employees while subsequently being pushed around by the people who ultimately sign the paychecks. So you must see some echoes in stories that you've read about the gender integration of the military academies, for instance, or other arenas that had uh, a specific gender, obviously, female college, it, it, I'm not suggesting Bryn Mawr as an example, but when I've read stories and, and heard from people that uh, were the first women into West Point or the Air Force Academy, whatever, some of those experiences must must echo in your in your mind as well. Yeah, I mean, especially coming from Bryn Mawr, I'll never forget my first couple of ferry rides into New York, and I was literally the only woman on the boat at 6 a.m. in wow. the morning. And so... You know, what happens with that is a couple things. Number one, I wasn't used to being in community with all men um, because I went I went to this woman's college. Um, but also because the numbers are so skewed, you feel so lucky to be there. It's almost like you won the golden ticket. I felt like a Willy Wonka that I got the golden ticket to, to the chocolate factory. And so I better not mess up and stay in line and earn my spot. And I'm sure that's the same when anyone feels like the other in an organization. So these messages you've received since the book came out, um, they're from, as, as I think you mentioned, they're from other financial institutions as well. So it's not just your former employer. I have heard from large corporations, small ones, public, private Nonprofit, for profit, because what I've observed is, you know, in my experience, it was kind of an abuse of power and you only need two people to have a warped power dynamic. So you don't need to be in a Fortune 500 company for this stuff to go on. Jamie is the author of Bully Market, my story of money and misogyny at Goldman Sachs. When we come back, Jamie and I are going to talk about some of the analogies, similarities and maybe dissimilarities between the closed community of Goldman Sachs and financial services on Wall Street and the closed community that sometimes is suggested that super tent that's hard to get into called the federal government. That and more after this. We want to put out a huge thank you to our listeners who put us in touch with some of the best voices in Washington, D.C. and the region. We've been hearing from you through Twitter, LinkedIn, and other direct messaging. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. And thanks to all of those who stay in touch with us. Again, we're so excited to be joined by Jamie Fiore Higgins. She is the author of a book called Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. She was at the firm for over 18 years, leaving in 2016. And this book has caused a tremendous reaction 
particularly as Jamie and I have discussed um, in the prior part of our conversation from people who have messaged her, messaged her privately saying that the stories that she has recounted, that she recounts in the book, are so evocative of these employees' experiences as well. So, Jamie, what are some things that you recounted in your book that were particularly memorable in a negative way at your time at the firm? You know, I'll never forget my first week on the trading desk. Goldman Sachs had put out a Facebook of sorts, and this was before Facebook was Facebook. It was a little booklet with every new hire's photo and a brief bio. And I'm sure it was the firm's intent to be a a way to welcome the new hires to the firm. Maybe you see someone who went to your college or who was your major, mentor them, have a coffee with them. And, you know, the guys on my desk actually used the data in there to build a macro on the attractiveness, they used more colorful words, um, of the women. So their breast size, their leg length, their butt shape. And um, they, they ranked the women accordingly. And that's how they decided who they were going to mentor. So that was kind of all the nonsense that I initially encountered. And I called it the white noise of Wall Street. As I got more senior, though, um, the the harassment and the bullying and the abuse got more egregious. So you're constantly bombarded. There's no privacy. So if somebody says something insulting, it's just right there and everybody else hears it, right? Yeah. And in fact, when that happened with the Facebook, I turned so bright red because I was so embarrassed, frustrated, confused. Uh, and they saw my red face and they called me Sister Jamie, the prude nun. Oh, boy. Because I didn't know how Wall Street rolled. They told me that sex will get you further on Wall Street than an Ivy League diploma. Just a ga- I'm aghast. So, yeah. so, and this was a, just a sort of a daily thing, right? There was no, no respite from this. Every morning you'd show up and the, the banter would begin. Absolutely. The porn, the jokes, the sexist, you know, the, the sexist insults. Um, con- it was constant. And, and the interesting thing is when I first started, you know, whenever you're with a group of people and something doesn't ring true, what do you normally do? You look to your left, to your right, to almost ask, like, is this me? And what I observed was everybody had kind of put their heads down. So even the, the amount of people who engage in the behavior weren't necessarily the majority, but everyone was complicit by ignoring it. And what happens when behavior is ignored, it's normalized. Exactly. And that it just becomes expected. And what I observed was the more senior I got, the more responsibility I got, quite frankly, the more money I was earning, the more egregious the acts happened. For example, I worked with a, a, a guy, he actually worked for me. He was having an affair with a client, which is totally inappropriate, um, was really grounds for termination, but my boss wouldn't move him. And so I was tasked with getting him off the account. And it was a very lucrative account. So I pulled him aside to get him off the account. I had swapped the account with someone else. So then if he was having an affair, at least he wasn't their direct account rep. When I told him in this meeting room, in this conference room by herself, he charged at me, grabbed me by the throat, pinned me against the wall, told me he was going to rip my bleeping face off. 
luckily he kind of came to his senses. He left. It was the end of the day because um, any good manager knows you send tough messages at the end of the day. Nobody was there. And when I reported it the next business day, I was told that I could go to HR, but that they weren't getting rid of this guy because this guy had something better than a Harvard degree. He was a scratch golfer. And he had connections with all the golf pros at Baltistraw, at Augusta, at Pebble Beach in Ireland. And that was worth keeping him around, even though what he did to me was completely, completely inappropriate. So in some amazing, horrible portion of management's brain at the firm, the money rolled in through person X. So person X's misbehavior isn't worth losing the remuneration to the firm. Is that the thinking you think went on there? A hundred percent. And it's so ridiculous because there are so many smart, chart people out there. Right. You could, you could actually have a smart person. They don't have to be the best culture carrier or anything, but you can have people who are good at their job, good with customers, bring in money and do not completely ruin the culture. Yeah. Like you can have smart people who are decent as well. It's possible. Yeah. What percentage of this behavior in your experience was fueled by cocaine or other accelerants? Oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> I made a lot of bad decisions when I was at Goldman. I almost lost my family in the process. I almost lost my husband in the process. So to your point, Mark, I have to give some grace to this guy because to your point, who the heck knows what he was on, right? Yeah. And there were countless people who were coming in and out of rehab, who were coming in drunk. I mean, smelling the liquor on their breath, knowing they were high, knowing they were on stuff. So it happens a lot. And, and it doesn't surprise me because I know for myself, being in that environment, that cutthroat environment where there's so much money and power on the line, you have to find coping mechanisms. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of those coping mechanisms end up being unhealthy ones. I succumb to some of those. So it doesn't surprise me. It happens to others as well. I'm just lucky that I was able to stop the cycle and leave. All the guys I wrote about, still there. Yeah. The economics, I'm sure, was difficult to walk away from. I, I would argue some of the, the colleagues I've had in the financial service industry that reached new levels their, their lifestyle cost structure becomes so locked in place that they almost can't afford to leave this job or lose this job, which to your maybe to your point is to go along, to get along element that, that the economics kind of mandates. And that's exactly right. Back in 2008 with the financial crisis and TARP, uh, there was a big pushback against these Wall Street firms for the egregious bonuses. So what did these big firms do, they raised everyone's base salaries. People don't leave because they need it to survive. The name of our show is What's Working in Washington, and perhaps I've teed it up in the exact reverse way, which is what's working in Washington for a $4 trillion annual entity called the United States federal government. I spent some, uh, in my in my opinion, a glorious short career as an, a political appointee in the federal government. But I saw some things going on that, that are sort of uh, abut some of the ABUT, abut some of the stuff that you saw on Wall Street, one of which is kind of a closed society. The federal government, kind of once you're in, is its own, it has its own gravitational pull. And perhaps you've seen it as well, but when there's 
a certain set of language, the, the acronyms, a certain way of behaving, a certain set of titles and a, and a pay scale and stuff that, that's, that's hard to understand from the outside. It forms a sort of we versus them culture. And I'm sure that's similar to what you may have seen at Goldman as well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, um, you end up having lifers, yeah, right? Exactly. You see that all in government and you see that all in these at these big firms. And not only do you have lifers, but then you have generational lifers. Yeah. The partners at Goldman beget the partners at Goldman. And it just ends up being this kind of own ecosystem. And it's a shame because both organizations, the government, large firms like Goldman Sachs, are robbed of fresh new perspectives because of that. We don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to follow up on one major point about your experience, which is since the book, you've been sort of canceled from some invitations and seemingly from outside pressure. Can you recount a couple of examples of that for us? Yeah. So, you know, um, when the book initially came out, I had all this great outreach from people sharing their stories and women's affinity groups would reach out to me. We would really like you to speak or some small businesses, you know, we would really like for you to empower young women, some schools, universities, and colleges. And then what always seems to happen, Mark, is that I get uninvited. Wow. And the first couple of times it happened, I was like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, there was just a miscommunication or whatever. But now I realize it's not the case, meaning people want me on some level because they believe that I have a message that could help people, men and women in the workplace, but then they feel this pressure and fear of retaliation from firms like Goldman Sachs. And so um, ironically, we don't even know if that pressure is real. Yep. To me, I almost feel like they fear it like Oz in The Wizard of Oz. Exactly. Maybe you're going Maybe you're gonna pull the curtain and it's just this helpless little old guy, right? Yep. But at the end of the day, it is keeping my story from being spread, which um, that's been the biggest surprise of it all. Because don't get me wrong, Goldman Sachs silenced me while I was there. And I understand why all these current employees send me DMs and private messages because they don't want to go on record. But the fact that this power transcends employees and clients to just the general public has been um, really kind of scary and disappointing. But, as, but honestly, it's by design because it's keeping the power with those who have always wanted it and who have always had it. Well, Jamie Fiore Higgins, we ask every one of our guests at the end of the show, if they rule the world, what's one thing they would start doing or one thing they would stop going on that is currently occurring? What's your response? I think we have to start making good on the promises we give to the young women of the country or even the world. I'm raising three daughters myself. You know, we tell them you can be whatever you want to be. More college graduates in the U.S. are women. But yet they have a terrible time in the workplace um, because they are a minority. So what I say is let's make good on our promises that women could have careers just like men where there is equality and respect. Jamie Fiore Higgins, author of Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. I love that answer, and we loved having you on What's Working in Washington. Thank you. Thank you. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by The Sunbathers. You 
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.